Welcome back. You're listening to Tad Smart Talk with Steve-O. Good morning. This is WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5. Please join me in welcoming our guest, Robert Fisk, who is, uh, I believe, the founder and the leader of the group Main Friends of Animals. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you very much. Um, we definitely want to get into both the mission and what the Main Friends of Animals are doing, but we usually start with a quick background and you know, where you grew up, went to school, and then we'll talk about what led you to uh, being so involved in this important issue and this important area in terms of uh, animals. So what what, were, what are the early years of uh, Robert Fisk look like? Uh, quite a bit unlike today. Went to uh, college and majored in physical education. I was a former college basketball coach, and then I owned um, the Portland Athletic Club in Falmouth for 20 years, which was one of the three largest and most comprehensive health and racket clubs in New England. Did you grow up in Maine, or where you actually uh, Exeter, New Hampshire. Got it. Yep. And then on the course of all that, I've always been a political junkie, always been politically involved, and I ran for the legislature, for the 118th legislature, which was in 1997. And like many who go up there, you typically have certain things that are important to you. That's why you go up there to be a part of it all. My three issues were small business, obviously. Uh, I was strong on the environment. And thirdly was kind of government campaign reform that we're dealing with today as well. However, and the other thing was animals, animal uh, protection. And through osmosis or default, um, I became the resident expert on animal issues there were plenty of people that were doing stuff for small business, for the environment, and for government reform, but nobody was doing much for animals. And I realized right there that there was no cohesive voice for animals, the issues that involved them. So that's the short story of the genesis of Maine Friends of animal, Animals. Uh, when I left the legislature, I formed a nonprofit in 1998. Got it. But, and, and... I want to get in depth into that in terms of the mission, the need, and, and where things stand in terms of policy. But it's always interesting to me when people are involved with local or state government and kind of the motivation. I served uh, in my local municipality in Yarmouth and ran for higher office. I wasn't successful, so I'm always interested in getting people's perspective. So you spent two years up in Augusta? Uh, yes, I was involved in the um, in politics in Maine for quite a while, but my stint in uh, Augusta was for two years. Yes, back in 1997, you know, the, you know, everyone looks at kind of contemporary experience as being so unique, or things are much worse now, or much better because you know. But given your context, uh, which is about 20 years ago. What was your experience like in terms of serving in uh, up in Augusta in the State House, in terms of getting things done, in terms of uh, a spirit of cooperation, and as opposed to for what you see now as a policy leader for Maine Friends of uh, Animals, and as you see as just a citizen? Well, uh, I think we all go up there, you know, with hopeful with hopeful idealism. Idea. Yeah, I took the words right out of my mouth, and um, and in many cases it can be. I think uh, it's a small state, and one person can make a difference in some ways. Here I was in the minority and the and the minority in my party, and still able to get some bills passed. Um, but I think there was always some contentiousness up there. Uh, there was when I was there. Um, I think it's unfortunate, but uh, it seems to be the makeup, and of course now it's worse than ever. And um, 
I think it's very unfortunate. I, I, I um, yearn for a better dialogue on all issues, and even our legislation has met political fates that were very unfortunate. Well, when we talk about, you know, we're, we're a nation of laws, and as a, as a democracy and as, you know, the history of America and how we're set and everyone points to the Constitution as kind of the legal bedrock, but everything kind of originates uh, in, in legislative and congressional bodies. Or, you know, for local municipalities with ordinances, that's where things are really kind of controlled. Counties have some jurisdiction, but generally at the state level, it's with the state legislature and the, and the national level, it's the Congress or the executive branch. And so whether it has to do with uh, policies that impact animals, friends of animals and policies, or whether it's tax, it's all about, it's all about laws. You know, my concern here in Maine is it's very specific to how we're set up relative to the number of house reps um, in the size of our state. So with 35,812 square miles, 488 municipalities, you know, many of the challenges, in my opinion, that we face has to do with the very mechanism that we have to fix it, which is the legislative body. And if we don't have an effective system and if we don't have an engaged electorate, every issue from education to health care to social services to environmental issues to animal policy, animal rights, all those things are important don't happen. And before we start talking about your group, Maine Friends of Animals, do you have a perspective relative to the the political infrastructure in Maine? Because most of these other issues I just mentioned, in my opinion, are downstream. If we don't have an effective government that can process information and make the best decisions for Maine collectively, then Everything else is downstream, and year by year, people say, oh, this is the worst. It can't get any worse. It keeps getting, in Maine, you know, as a state, in my opinion, keeps falling further behind. So do you have any insights as a person who served as an elected official in, um, in Augusta? Um, no, that's a, a long question. I'm we could sure fix it here. We, we could fix it right here. We have Robert Fisk here. He, he, <laughs> he's odd to talk about Maine Friends of Animals, which we're going to get to in just a second. But, but before we do that, before we fix education, before we come up with better social policy, before we, we need, we need to fix the system because we're, we, everything's downstream. Everything is based on what the system does. Well, I can't agree with you more. Um, the system is broken. It's broken at the state level. It's broken on a national level. And when you have, without getting into too much of national politics, but when you have a small body in the Republican House that can hold up all, all uh, legislation that comes forward, uh, that's not good for the country. And in, there, there needs to be a restructuring of how government works, but I, it's so politically uh, toxic that uh, people don't want to give an inch on either side. And I think all of us, and regardless of what political spectrum you're in, um, would like to see us do more. Obviously, the, the voters spoke uh, in this last election that they're not happy with the process and how the ele- the, our elected officials are dealing with it. But... I can give you examples with Maine Friends Animals where, again, it was all political in terms of how our legislation gets passed through, and um, it's very frustrating. Um, 
I just I yearn for the days when we had more um, people who were able to compromise and see through the woods that uh, we need to give a little to get a little. I mean, politics is compromise, and yet that seems to be a dirty word today. Well, I think it's either a dirty word or we're in a period of kind of a convergence of uh, media infrastructure going through a period of decay because of economics, because when there were three networks and a couple of affiliates and a newspaper, you had journalism fairly focused in under some kind of self-imposed ethical guidelines. And then as media uh, expanded to the internet and there, you know, the walls of uh, journalistic standard kind of came down. And whereas the output of information or detail, whether it's factual or not factual or news or fake news, has been a, a flood, a tsunami of, and people are able to kind of self-select what they believe and what information. Re- reconfirm what they already believe. And that's why they tune to, this, to their, their media source that reconfirms what they want to believe already. Right. And there's a term for that. I forget what it is. But... Um, no, it, it's... it's. Um, we all used to, I mean, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I used to tune to 60 Minutes. Yeah. And they may have gotten a story wrong. Yeah. Or, you know, and I grew up yeah. outside of Boston, and I'd read the Boston Globe, and they may have gotten a story wrong. But there was a credibility. So if the Boston Globe did a story on, like, Big Dig corruption, which yeah. was a billion-dollar infrastructure thing, I accepted, and it was part faith-based, but it was based on some practical, empirical information that they were writing from a position of they researched, they thought it out. And if Mike Wallace or Morley Schaefer or anyone else at 60 Minutes of the early years said, hey, we're down in Central America and we're looking at the Panama Canal or we're looking at this trade agreement, I accepted the fact that they were doing it impartially and they were doing it uh, really, really well in terms of the work of digging out information and really kind of presenting it. And I think with very few exceptions, that worked. But now... There's the, the currency of, of fact or journalism is so devalued that it's just information. Well, and it's gotten worse in the fact that I, you know, sometimes we get what we deserve. And when I think the, the vast majority of the electric, uh, not being condescending, but does not do their homework in terms of researching the issues. And when it gets convoluted with stories that are semi-true or, or uh, a spin or whatever... We as citizens need to do a better job of defining what the facts are, doing a little more homework than other than just catching up 15 minutes on a news station and say, well, I know what the news is today. Um, I've been reading the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and the Portland Press Herald almost every day for the last 30 years. Um, and I take pride in being informed because it's difficult enough for those who are informed to make decisions, for those people who don't take the time to really research what is true and is right and what is best for the country, we lose. Uh, by the way, we have Robert Fisk here, where we'll, we'll be talking about the main Friends of Animals, which he is the founder and the leader of. Uh, I was reading a column today. Deb, have you, have you read uh, the column I'm referencing here? I have not. It was a really kind of an interesting, well-written column. The author, let's see, uh, Steve Woods. Oh, I know uh, him. Well, yeah, he yeah. writes for The Forecaster. Yes, he's uh, a great writer. Uh, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I, 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 well, I, he's interesting. Well, Let's say I, that. I don't. I wouldn't even say that. I, I would. I would say he's making a noble attempt to present information and facts. Okay. But the current column that this guy Steve Woods has in the Forecaster uh, leads off with a quote from Isaac Asimov, and here's the quote: "There is a cult of ignorance in the United States 
and there has always been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread widening its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that, quote, my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. And I think that's what we were just talking about. There are people who you can present all kinds of facts to, and the defense is, well, this is my opinion, and I believe it. And I don't want to go through specific cases because it's just it's counterproductive, mm-hmm. but... Mm-hmm. But at some point, we've got away from knowledge. We, it, it is basically like, you know, my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. And, and you can't have a, 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 a working society if, if information, facts, and truth, and all those other things become discarded. And it's just kind of individual opinion or individual kind of thinking, right? Absolutely. I don't know if we solved that yet, Robert, but let's move, let's move on because it's just so frustrating because, you know, we're here today talking about your group, which I think does great work. And over the last few years, I've had every other group and organization, some civic, some charity, some local, some Preble Street, some environmental scientists in education. I've had president of UMaine and on every single one of these issues. Uh, where I think there's good information and that there's kind of righteous passion for the interest of whatever group I'm talking. It always leads back to either the local law, the federal law, the state law, and the legislative body either recognizing it and helping it or blocking it. And I personally think that a lot of our energy should go back to not reworking our Constitution or reworking our political system, but making people more aware. And I actually have a program that I created where I want to start with kids. You know, high school seniors, you know, 90% of high school seniors graduating will be 18 or almost 18, and they'll be voting within a few months from graduating. And and 97% don't have rudimentary understanding of civics. They don't, 97% don't have rudimentary understanding of geography. Right. You picked out um, 10 relatively major countries in the world and asked a senior in high school to find them. The vast majority can't do it. Yeah. So if we're talking about the Mideast or we're talking about Afghanistan or Sierra or, you know, what's going on in Iran, it's abstract. And if you're not rooted in some some understanding, you can't make an informed decision. You know, and I I joked, but it's probably more uh, true than than, uh, fiction, that most kids don't know a referendum from a refrigerator. And, you know, Deb... You know, I do know the difference. Well, I you're just not, want you to know. Oh, Deb, you're informed. And we may disagree on virtually every single much thing. everything, yeah. It starts out when you say good morning. Yes. Right from there, I've, I, I, I could usually find something to go, Deb, what are you talking about? <laughs> but anyhow, I, what I want to talk about here is uh, Robert is here to talk about Maine Friends of Animals. And so, so you were... When you were in the legislature in 97, that was already a passion for you personally, I'm guessing. And then um, you, you, you brought that to the forefront in terms, of, in terms of wanting to create more awareness or legislation. But talk about how Maine Friends of Animals was founded, and then let's talk about what the organization is, and then we'll talk about some of the policy and some of the issues happening now. Uh, well, again, I, I brushed upon it a little bit in the beginning. Um, Main Friends Animals, once I was up in the legislature and found there was such a discrepancy, I mean, bills would come up there to benefit animals and they'd be presented, but 
the people who presented it didn't realize that there's a lot more to that other than besides, you know, lobbying for it, talking to your, your senators and representative, talking to committee members. There's a lot more going into, as you know, passing a bill than simply going up there and presenting one. <clears throat> There was no cohesive voice or structure to do that, um, uh, to get bills passed that way. So ultimately, I decided when I formed Maine Friends of Animals that it would be a 501c4, which would allow us to be politically engaged because I felt there's no political support for any of these uh, bills that we wanted to pass. Uh, we subsequently have become a 501c3, but again, the genesis was <clears throat> the idea to get a better political understanding that to pass these bills, you have to do more than just go up there and present it. Interesting. So as an organization, uh, you know, now that it's set up as a 501c3, um, what is what is the scope and what is the mission? How many people are part of it? Sure. And, and, and by the way, the, the website for if people are online and want to kind of look for information as we're talking about this, it, you know, for the main friends of animals is mfoa.net. And so uh, it's a very comprehensive website. I was on it earlier today and there's a lot of really interesting information. And I love your headline, by the way, on the website, silence is the voice of complicity, speak up for animals. So talk about what the organization looks like in terms of structure. Well, that uh, model right there starts with it. We, you know, we need to speak up. We need to do it effectively. Uh, our mission, in a sentence, is to uh, promote the humane treatment of animals through education, advocacy, and legislation. And that's what we've primarily focused on. We also have programs. We have a pet club program and things. But we focus primarily on education. And, in fact, when we introduce... Um, large controversial bills, um, we always parallel it with a campaign, an educational campaign, a media campaign, and a legislative campaign to support these bills. Um, in terms of numbers, we are 1,500 strong. I think we're kind of the who's who of animal protection uh, group. Uh, they're based all over the state. Uh, we do tabling and talks and so forth throughout the state, uh, promoting humane treatment of animals. Um, so as a nonprofit, then you, uh, my guess is that you kind uh, of sustain the mission and the infrastructure on donations? We do, yes. So there's no, it's not a state agency and there's no, are there any national associations that help support the mission? You know, you know people talk about the Humane Society, that has, has one kind of focus well, and mission. And we, uh, well, yeah, we like to think that our state model is one of the best in the country, Um and we do, we focus only on animal protection that involves main animals. But in general, whether it's circus elephants being brought into the state, that engages us with it. Um, but um, all in all, um, our mission is uh, really focused on education uh, of these issues because we're in the early stages of a movement. And in many cases, people don't tr truly understand all these issues. So we have to spend a great deal of time doing an initial outlay of education and advocacy before we can move into the different bills. Well, let's talk about there's been uh, quite a bit of press recently specific to harness racing and specific to uh, both subsidies and what happens with uh, retired horses. So this is, I know this isn't 
the sole focus of me and Friends of Animals, but it's certainly kind of an event that has a uh, that's relevant to Maine relative to some economic issues having to do with harness racing and horse racing and also uh, humane treatment. And also it's kind of intersected with a lot of the casino issues and referendums that are trying to use, uh, I don't know if Scarborough Downs is the example, but trying to use that gambling infrastructure to bring in casinos. So where, where do you all stand on harness racing or horse racing in general in Maine? And what are the policy issues that are uh, at the forefront? Well, we've been very much engaged with the issue of horse slaughter and uh, harness racing in general. Um, people tend to think of the old-fashioned uh, buconic uh, picture of horses out in the um, plain, out in the pasture, and so forth. Uh, but the life of a harness racing horse is anything but that. Um, there's considerable amount of cruelty involved. In fact, in the racing, they get they are fined uh, frequently uh, for their use of whips and so forth. But how they're they're kept is very in, uh, cruel. The history, there's been a long checkered history in the industry about doping uh, horses. It's been proven ad infinitum that they use that to either enhance the horses or to make them run uh, faster. And thirdly, and probably the most tragic part of it is horse racing. Uh, these animals generally race to ages three, four, five, eight maybe, uh, not much longer than that. But they live to be 30, 40 years old. So when the industry is done with them, they really don't, want to keep them and so they have a need for an outlet for what I would call a disposable commodity. They use these magnificent animals to the point that they make money off it and once they make the money off it they really don't want the animals i.e. they get put off to, uh, to a shelter or worse they get shipped up to Canada to two plants up there that are horrific and they slaughter horses. Um, Are we talking about specifically harness racing or does this apply to Thoroughbred oh, racing yes. or other forms? No, all, all racing, yes. Oh, yeah. but, but here in Maine, I think we have, and we still have at a few locations, a history particular to harness racing, right? But harness racing is a very outdated uh, industry that's lost all its um, cachet back in the 60s and 70s. There was 40, what they call the, the handle, which is the amount of money uh, um, put down on horse racing. In 1987, it was $48 million. Today, it's $4 million. And then when they first were going downhill and they were in full-scale panic because of the lack of interest in the money being bet, they were shored up with uh, off-track betting. And that was supposed to be the savior. Right. They went through that, and that didn't do anything. Then they went through went off the casino money that came out where they had a cascade fund. The vast majority of that cascade fund goes to supporting the harness racing industry. And in doing so, they put in over $80 million into this industry that's one-tenth of what it was in 1987, and they keep subsidizing it. Um, so it makes no sense. I mean, this is, um, like I said, it's outdated. It's... Um, much less popular than it was. Its, it's popularity has faded considerably. And it's an industry that um, really, and one, one of the controversies, and I had an article published in the Portland Press Herald was regards to the fact that they want to put some of this money aside for these retired young racehorses to care for them. And the industry said, no way, we're not going to do that. We're going to use that money for the Harness Racing Association. 
So here we have an industry. Who actually wanted to put the money aside in terms of to, you know, to, to go specifically to help retire? It was an idea proposed uh, by, I think, uh, Robin Coffey, who is a uh, horse retrainer, um, and she was in uh, one of the articles as well, uh, which is a great idea, but uh, a better idea is not having retired racehorses at all. Right. In fact, I'm looking at a story uh, written uh, by Colin uh, Woodward yes. in the Press Herald. Or you had a, an op-ed that you wrote, and then you referenced his piece. Correct. Casino funds can offer hope. I agree about the business. Deb, do you have a view on horse racing? You ever go to Scarborough Downs? I've gone ever... once in my whole life, and I think it was in the 80s. I made one bet. I won, and I said, okay, I'm all done. I don't need to do that. So as you, as you over the last couple of decades have referred to me as you being a winner, is that the, <laughs> is that the origin? Was that the point that we're, exactly. we've identified yes. the origin point? But you know what? I don't believe we should be subsidizing this business. Yeah. Well, uh, at the tune mm-hmm. of $80 million over 2005, and this is the third attempt to revive this industry. Is it based on lobbying? And back to my back to my original rant about politics and how laws are made and how policies are created, much of it is driven by who is supporting or who has legislative support based on geography and who the state senator is and who the rep is. Because my, my experience with horse racing, I should disclose this, is okay. a, a young Stevo, growing up outside of Boston, my father, for reasons that I've never asked him, because I don't think I've talked to him in quite a while, but my father owned, at different points, two different racehorses, harness racing horses. And one was called Dickie Town, and one was Betty Rome's Folly. And it's one of those crazy things where this is 50 years ago, Right. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. And again, we'll we'll have a neurologist on next week explaining why I can't remember what I had for (laughs) breakfast. But I remember these two racehorses because they used to race up here and they used to race down in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and there was Seabrook or some other place. And my father used to go to like Friday night races or Saturday races. And if the horse won, he and a couple other owners, there'd be like a syndicate of guys, would pose in front of the horses and then a photo would be taken with the date and the race and stuff. And I remember from 50 years ago, you know, my father was in like a construction business, a swimming pool business, asking him, like, uh, what's up with the horse thing? And it was a tax thing. It was, you know, because horses were expensive. And it wasn't like a love of horses. And it wasn't like, and, and with the sulkies and the other thing. And it also seemed, and this is a blanket generalization and a judgment. It doesn't mean to impugn anyone here in Maine or other people that, uh, but it's sort of a corrupt business. When you have the drugs, the treatment of the horses, when you have people betting large sums of money and it's really easy to manipulate and say, hey, it just feels like a dirty business aside from, in general, to your point, how the horses are treated while they're racing and then even more... um, Sadly, how they're often treated when they're no long, when they no longer have an economic value, and many of these owners just don't want to keep feeding them for twenty years if there's no economic value. Absolutely, and that's the, that's the, the the dirty secret of the industry that they keep avoiding. But that um, can't be a secret; it just seems so obvious. But it but is how, obvious. But this, you go back to the ineffectiveness of the legislature, right? Uh, Representative um, 
Don Moran, who is the spokesperson and lobbyist and on the board for the Maine Harness Race Association, is up there every day as a legislator, keeping trying to keep this uh, industry afloat. And that's why we, as ed, trying to be an educator, we I wrote this letter in uh, for the Portland Press Herald, and it's in our newsletter, and we send it to all the legislators. So we just keep going back there and saying, why are you subsidizing this industry? It's uh, faded drastically in popularity, and we're putting $80 million that could be used in all kinds of other programs into this. And their counterarguments, well, you're going to put these people out of business and so forth. Well, business come and go based on their viability, and this is an industry that's long outlived its purpose. It has It's faded in popularity. It's extremely cruel. And you bring up this point about horse slaughter. This is, our bill would have uh, made sure that you couldn't have a horse slaughter plant in the state, but also you couldn't transport horses through the state up to Quebec where they were being. These are horrific facilities. And you think about a horse. There's no other animal on this planet that served mankind so long, so well, so nobly, in so many capacities as a horse. Right. And, and now it meets the fate of being slaughtered. We have Robert Fisk here as the founder and leads uh, Maine Friends of Animals. So Specific to, just so I have a, a deeper understanding, by all accounts, Scarborough Downs is is on its last legs. Exactly. And, right? and, and so they're trying to, you know, there's referendums and they've tried to get slot machines, which is, again, I think is kind of a dumb, dumb approach. It's just, I, agree. I, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I'm sure our, many of our listeners are like active slot, but it, it may be the lowest form of lizard brain gambling there is because you put in some money, hit a, hit a thing, it is some algorithm that yeah. says, hey, it gives out 95 cents for every dollar you put in. And still people think, oh, I'm, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. So yeah. you mentioned Scarborough Downs. Right. And they're on their last leg and they're going to be faded out. They went back time and time again for more money to subsidize their industry. Saying and it's important did, to Maine. Saying and all it, it yeah. did was it, it increased the uh, pay for some of the um, races and um, and they breeded more horses, but it didn't do anything to increase their overall handle, which is if you go to Scarborough Downs you, last year or whatever, you basically see empty stands, and then you go in where they do the off-track betting with all the uh, right. cameras up, uh, basic races around the country. Bigger tracks Big track. and Santa And they're drinking, they're and drinking beer and throwing away their little tabs as they lose on the floor. And then you'll see t 10 or 20 um, men sitting there drinking beer and on these off-track betting things, and that's what it is today. It's, it's lost all its... Um, Cache that it had so many years ago. It's, I keep saying, but it's outdated and it's cruel and it should end and the state should not be subsidizing it. Well, part of it, I think, too, uh, living in Maine most of my life and, you know, having relatives that went to Scarborough Downs frequently, we consistently saw them lose and what it did to their lives to lose consistently. And that gave the rest of us who didn't gamble and want to go there a reason not to ever go there. Yeah, I mean, that's a bigger discussion because yes, I think most forms of gambling, you know, you could talk about lottery tickets, which, again, is another hopeless thing where, in, in our case, our state is kind of a co-conspirator by the way the lottery is set up and mm -hmm. under this kind of pipe dream that all the funds go into the education fund and then... I think Governor LePage changed that because the general fund needed the, it, the whole thing mm -hmm. about gambling is, 
I, I believe, a serious, uh, uh, you know, a, a serious issue that goes to our morality right. as a society because in most cases it preys on some of the most vulnerable members of society based on socioeconomical and educational vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And some of, the, some of the, the people that can least afford, you know, yeah. Your money bags. If you want to go gamble, you know, Deb, I got it to throw. It, but... You have got it to throw. You're a media superstar, and so with WLOB, <laughs> they pay you the big bucks. That's and right. You've baby. got your Lamborghini, and you've got all that. But for most people, living paycheck to paycheck or yeah. fixed income, the, you know what you just described, Robert. I, I've seen it tracks. I've seen it casinos. I don't actively go to casinos, but for other reasons or visiting somebody, I've been. And it is it is desperate. It is sad. There's nothing fun and exciting about it. There's nothing like, woo, come and have fun. It's more human uh, despair. It's much more. And the, the, the other sad fact is that despair and that despondency and many times the destitution that relates to it, we all end up paying for it, it's somewhere on the back end because there's all kinds of aftercare. There's all kinds of other issues, social programs, because because of this. But how how do we relative? I want to move on to other issues that you're involved in, main friends of animals, but specifically to horses and horse race. What policy is being, or what laws are being considered where people can be more aware? And what does it look like in the next year to either have you know? The idea of horses being slaughtered and being um, for the simple reason that they were used or they're no longer fast or at Scarborough Downs. They're no, um, I, They've uh, had horses from the Kentucky Derby slaughtered. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, again, are the, the best of the best of thoroughbreds, right? They're as good. As long as they're producing or they're not for, used for stud, they're no use to them. It's who, who a commodity. Had, who, who had the famous quote, and I wish I had had it prepared and I just don't. That you know, a society can be judged in part by how it treats its animals. I think it was Gandhi. Yeah, and because this is a broader discussion, but somehow in many areas, in many categories, we as a society, and whether you whether it's dog fighting or how people other you know treat other kind of you know areas of our wildlife, if we don't stand up and go, yeah, animals are a different classification of life, but it's still life. Right, and they feel pain and agony the same as a human does. Right. Uh, so, if there's anything they're equal to, it's in the fact that when they are subjected to cruelty, they feel like a human does. Right. So, what can we do specific with horse racing, or what policies are pending where people could get involved if they if they want to kind of join the, uh, you know, the good fight to have better policy here in Maine, whether it's in horse racing or laws having to do with horses uh, transported through the state to be slaughtered. Well, and on this specific issue, um, we spent three years on legislation, and we passed it in the House, and then it lost in the Senate and a committee, but it was led by um, the governor. He he was not in support of the bill, so we lost it in the Senate. But whether we go back to that now, and we may not because we spent three years on it, the easiest and best way to end it is just what I said. In this, if we end the state subsidizing of harness racing, it's gone. 
So uh, then all I can say is do they have to call vote us, on it call? every budget cycle in terms of their no I, this is something the legislature uh, legislature is going to have to do on their own. Okay. In other words, it's in, it's, in, it's in the cascade funds, as it's called, from the casino revenues. That's under the purview of, I don't know if it's on the Appropriations Committee or whomever, but whoever it is, they um, have to make this judgment that no longer should this money be going to it. If they stop subsidizing the industry, there will no longer be. And even with the subsidizing, they're still uh, free-falling because Scarborough Downs is closing. So, Does this fall along party lines? I mean, for me, you know, I haven't even asked you if you're a Democrat or Republican, right, left, blue, mm-hmm. red. But this issue is, you know, and I'm sure there's exceptions in both directions, but is it a policy issue that is kind of rooted in one, poli- one party philosophy versus another? Uh we all I can say is the, the Senate Republicans were the one that killed the bill. Um, however, our sponsor was Representative Gary Knight from Livermore Falls, who was a Republican. And he did a fabulous job in, in uh, sponsoring this bill. So we we try to stay bipartisan because we know there are people who care about animals and animal cruelty on both sides of the aisle. Got it. We have uh, Robert Fisk here. He is the president and founder, director of Maine Friends of Animals. Their website is mfoa.net. They also have uh, Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Maine Friends of Animals. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about another issue having to do with policy that many people pointed to as playing uh, the pivotal role in our last gubernatorial election, and that is the Bayer referendum. So I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, it was something, in fact, uh, is it Katie, uh, the woman who was one of the, the head uh, leaders of uh, the anti-Bayer referendum? Uh, Katie Hansberry. Hansberry. Was, yeah. Yep, she had been in a couple of times, and I was vocal saying that it made sense to me because it had to do with not necessarily outlawing bear hunting, but the practices of how baiting and how donuts were used and how dogs and hounds and what many political gurus, and they're all over the place, pointed to, uh, you know, in terms of the gubernatorial race a couple of years ago where Mike Michoud versus uh, Paula Page was running for re-election. Early on, it looked like that uh, Mike Mishu had uh, a, an advantage in the polls, and then this referendum question picked up steam, and then it became part of the advertising. And many gurus say that it was such a, uh, a passionate issue for people who didn't want to see the referendum pass that it, it was responsible for driving a lot of people to the polls that otherwise wouldn't have voted, and somehow that resulted in Paula Page being reelected versus Mike Mishu. I don't necessarily subscribe to that exact game theory because there's a lot of variables. But what happened with the referendum, because it seemed like such a clear, straightforward thing, again, whether, whether it's a horse or a bear, it's an animal. Well, I actually, that political scenario you just point out there, I agree with. Um, part of the issue was that we had considerable support on this bear, hunting bait hounds and traps in the southern part of the state. We didn't in the north, and that became very volatile up there. And I think they did get voters out who were against it and were also for Paula Page. But getting back to the issue, 
we've had two referendums to end bear hunting, trapping, and baiting. Very quickly, baiting, you put jelly donuts and whatever out a month ahead of time to habituate the animal to come to the site. While their head's on a bucket, you shoot them. Sometimes they're not killed, and they run off into the woods with an arrow in their back and die a month later. Uh, Hounding is worse. Uh, You get a pack of dogs who chase the bear. If the bear turns and fights, the dogs can be killed or maimed. The bear can be torn apart mercilessly. If it is treed, they'll wait till the collars on the dog show where the bear is. The person will come and shoot an arrow into it. It falls to the ground. It may or not be, be dead. And then thirdly, you trap a bear. We're the only state in the country that still allows you to trap a bear. And you probably saw some of the ads. That These are the metal had. traps where the yes, bear steps they're, they're in. They're horrific. And, and that animal is an extremely intelligent animal. More so than the pain he feels is that the realization he cannot escape. It could and be they, a mother bear with and, cubs nearby. And they, exactly. And the cubs will ultimately end up uh, through predation or starvation die as well. So they're all horrific ways. This is the fourth way of hunting bear, and <clears throat> that is the old-fashioned way. Go out and do like they normally did, find out where their habitat is and hunt them the regular way. So if we ban these other three, it doesn't mean we're banning bear hunting in its pack. We're banning three very cruel practices. So it never was about banning hunting. No. It was it, the, the referendum <clears throat> was very specific about these three practices Correct. that range from Correct. either either uh, abusive to horrific, depending on, you know. And, and, but the issue here is that the, the regular hunter, this is not about the regular hunter. These are people who are bottom-of-the-barrel hunters who come out of state, they don't really know how to hunt, and so they what do they want? They want a sure kill. So if you sit up in a tree stand while the animal's eating in a bait bucket, it's much easier to kill them. So... We're subsidizing what I think is a morally corrupt bargain by just inviting these people up here to do what they do. And what was the counter argument that? Uh, and, and you know, I remember some of the advertising. Like anything in the political realm, there's there's fact and fiction, and things are, you know, mythologies are created. But the way that you explained it was the way I understood it. It was just three uh, techniques and. The the uh, the trapping technique, you know, to your point, even in other places in North America or in the United States, where there's much bigger bear populations, they've outlawed it because, mm-hmm. and if it's inhumane in, I don't know if it's Montana, or I don't know if other parts of the country, how people in Maine couldn't just look at that and go, yeah, you know, they, well, you know it's, reason, it's inhumane. Well. In 2004 was the original one. I was actually the director of that one. I spent two years of my life on that campaign, around the state campaigning. And there was just a different mentality in some of the areas of the state. You're being um, kind, but let's drill down. If you're saying there's a different mentality, and let's say it's rural Maine, or let's say it's northern Maine, right. is it a different mentality, or is it something darker? Is it something, you know, because different mentality is like saying banana ice cream is much more popular here in Falmouth than coffee ice cream in Yarmouth. They're both subjective, but they're equal values. But if some people in the state are, are, and I, are, are uneducated or some people are, you know, uh, more primal in their approach. Let me answer. I, the, yeah. the, I, a perfect example of this is that we knew we had the southern part of the state in favor. So when I was the director in 2004, I went up and spoke to the Presque Isle Chamber of Commerce, people who are respected in the community. Sure. 
And I debated this with um, the one of the people from the Department of IFNW and one of the opposition. And I thought I did a very good job. And I felt that I had uh, won the debate, so to speak. So there were 100, exactly 100 people there. So they had a vote after. And I thought, geez, this would be great if I can come back from the north with a victory and show the folks in, in the campaign headquarters that right. we can win these things. I lost 88 to 12, and I shook my head. I couldn't believe it because the, the response in the room, I thought, was much different. I, I on same my, thing happens. On, my, on yeah. my way home, I met, and we met in the office, and I met with Bill Randall, uh, who just recently passed, who was our, he was a former hunter, a bear hunter, and he was our guru about the, the issue. Right. And I went out with my tail between my legs, and I said, Bill, I don't get it. And he says, it's a mentality. That's the way it was. That's the way it is, and then as far as they're concerned, that's the way it will be. And the and when the and you piggyback that with the opposition saying that we don't want out of state animal rights people telling us how to run our state, they piggyback that emotional on top of it. So we don't want the Humane Society of the United States and Maine Friends of Animals right. telling us how to run our woods. The third reason which um, I think the biggest reason we lost is the campaign they ran. It was uh, totally disingenuous and false advertising, and you probably remember even in the 2014 ads, they came out with all these things about bears going to be in your backyard, they're going to kill your pets, maim your children. In, in recorded history of Maine history, backwards history, not one person has ever been killed by a Maine black bear or even, even seriously wounded. Yet they made a whole camp pitch. Their biggest campaign pitch was that if we do not cull these bears, so to speak, and bring them down to the numbers, that we're going to have dangerous bears in our backyards. And that is a false argument. If you have a bear in the backyard, yeah. you take two pans and bang them together, and he runs away. Yeah. And again, I don't Even want to Even if get... he's hungry? Yes. I mean, they come there because people, and it's just... People leaving bird feeders out in trash cans and so forth. So, you know, if you're going to work with <clears throat> with the animals, you can't invite them in. But still, they're not dangerous per se. Yeah. It, it, you know, a couple in fact, if you ran into a bear in the woods, you'd, you'd run way faster that way than you'd go the other way because they don't interact with humans. Yeah. That's a false argument. All I'm saying is that whole campaign was based on a fear tactic that was incorrect. And again, I, I don't want to point to one party or another, but the idea of running a fear-based campaign, whether it has to do with Muslims, whether it has to do with people, mm -hmm. refugees or bears, it, 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 there are some similarities. Like when you amplify the issue and you infuse it with fear or hyperbole or mm -hmm. say the world's going to end, look what's happening. Mm -hmm then if a person isn't fully informed or isn't fully kind of cognitive, then, yeah, it's a, you know, fear is a based emotional reaction. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm afraid bears. Well, yeah, if, if, if bears are going to eat me, then, yeah, let's throw some donuts out and let's, you know, yeah. let's shoot an it, arrow. It's, it's a tough state because uh, getting back to the politics of it, especially wildlife issues, we've had many successful inroads in animal protection in terms of companion animals and so forth. We've passed eight different bills that have helped dogs and cats in the state and so forth. But it's much more challenging in wildlife issues because of Maine being the hunting state that it is. And um, the biggest issue, talking about the guts of politics, was every time I go into the IMW committee to present a bill, I'm walking into the lion's den. And the reason being and why we're getting no change is because the the Department of IFNW, the Wildlife Advisory Council, the hunting lobby, SAM and the Trappist Association, 
and often most of the committee members on the IFNW committee are the same people. They're politically, psychologically, financially, and uh, socially connected. So they have a small group of people have an um, oversized amount of power, and that's why we cannot get a lot of this legislation passed. Well, we only have a couple minutes left. I want to cover a couple other things. Our guest is Robert Fisk. He is the founder and the leader of Maine Friends of Animals. Their website is mfoa.net and also a Facebook page at Facebook forward slash Maine Friends of Animals. Um, a couple other kind of current events things having to do with treatment of animals. SeaWorld and the circus, Barnum and Bailey Circus. I never would have thought 10, 20 years ago that I would see a time where SeaWorld was... Um, you know, they'll still be in existence, but they've agreed to phase out, uh, mm-hmm. orca whales. Uh, Barnum and Bailey circus is growing up was kind of a staple for most families yeah. You go to the circus. Uh, does, does these changes reflect a positive trend in yes. terms of, yes. and shouldn't we yes. also balance some of these other discussions well, with there? Are, there is some big progress the, being made. The, the, well, the, again, in the early part of a movement, it's much more difficult to get wins than losses. And you have to take an eye try to uh, shore up uh, the folks in my organization say that, you know, you make small steps can lead to big changes. Back in 2004, Maine Friends Animals spent two legislative sessions to ban circus elephants in the state of Maine. There was television coverage. It was very well covered. We were the first state to pass on the House by March of 88 to 58 to ban circus elephants coming into the state of Maine. First in the country to do that. Well. Then Field Corporation, the parent company of uh, Ringling, brought up two lobbyists as soon as possible and lobbied the Senate, and we lost in the Senate. Um, but that was groundbreaking legislation that we passed. It almost got passed in 2004. Ringling Brothers closed last week, and their last circus with elephants was uh, in Providence about three months ago. Fifteen years later... There are now no circus elephants. So what we did 15 years ago, and we didn't think we had a chance in the world, it was all part of this education leads to advocacy, which leads to legislation. And we couldn't be happier. I mean, yes, it took 15 years, and we do feel the pendulum is swinging our way, albeit too slowly. What about, uh, we have one minute left, relative to laws that have to do with what are kind of more household pets, you know, not necessarily horses or elephants or what legislation exists for dogs and cats. Um, I I should also disclose my wife has been very active with your group and, you know, uh, you know, we as a family support your mission. uh, And there, you know, are there any current or soon uh, to be proposed policy changes in how either dogs or pets are sold or how pet stores can have dogs and cats. And right. Talk about that if you could in the last few seconds. Well, uh, yes, that, that is a bill also that we uh, were first uh, in the nation legislation, we was, which was in 2015, was to um, ban the sale of pets from out-of-state puppy mills in pet stores in Maine. And that passed in the House and the Senate, and the governor vetoed it. For what reason? Well, it was, I don't mean Well, puppy mills are places where there's not, you know, there's no standard care. 
There's no uh, the, 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 breeding the, guidelines. No, it's no, just the, produce the, as many puppies the, to sell. They live their lives in a cage, and uh, it would take me too long to explain right. the horrific conditions. But I will say this on a positive note here. One thing we do have very good in this state is legislation that we've passed. Men Friends Animals has been a part of that for care of domestic animals, dogs and cats. We rank as one of the top states in the country in terms of our laws for uh, companion animals. So we've had much more success on companion animal legislation than we have on wildlife issues, but that's to be expected. Well, I'd love to have you come back sometime because I do. I think, like, whether it's Gandhi, whoever we're paraphrasing, a society should be judged and should reflect upon their own kind of humanity as we treat and as we approach animals. And and, uh, I think that's important work you're doing. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. We've had Robert Fisk here in the studio. You've been listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O, News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5. You can go to Maine Friends of Animals at mfoa.net or Facebook forward slash Maine Friends of Animals. We'll be back next week.